God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. My guest today literally wrote the book on deconstructing religion. He's a longtime pastor, the host of the Love Forward podcast, and takes his message worldwide via Derek Day Multimedia. It's an honor to welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, my friend, my brother, the man, the myth, the legend, Derek Day. Man, listen, I am so honored and humbled to be on the podcast with the world famous, the world renowned. Jason Elam. I'm excited to be here, man. Well, this is just, uh, it's a really kick-ass moment in my life. So <laughs> I feel exactly the same way, Derek. I have known <laughs> of you for a long time and we've, we've talked back and forth. We've had some conversations and we've worked yes. together recently on the Nomad Conference. Uh, yep. But this is our first actual sit-down conversation and I'm really excited for this. Could you start us off telling us about the um, faith you were raised with? Well, that's a really good question because um, I I start off my story. I was born in Decatur, Illinois. And when I was four years old, my parents separated and and my mom was from Detroit. So we went back to Detroit to be with her parents, my grandparents. And basically my family breaks down into two discrete camps, the sinners and the saints. And we were hip deep in the sinner's camp. <laughs> there, there was no in-between, you know, basically we went to church as a, as a form of uh, social window dressing. It, it wasn't, it wasn't like there was anything deep or profound, but what happened was, is that, you know, again, I was, I was raised by my mom. She's a single parent, but when I got in my teenage years, I started doing some really reckless stuff. And so, uh, so my mom went to my dad and said, listen, you know, you got to take these kids. And so we went to spend the summer with my dad and I decided to stay. And this was in Burnsville, Minnesota. Now, let me unpack that because Detroit was blackety black, black. I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood with a, we went to predominantly black schools, uh, had little multicultural exposure. But when I went to Burnsville, Minnesota, we were literally the only black family in our neighborhood. And I was one of only four, uh, no, sorry, five black kids at Burnsville High School at the time. So it was, it was a big culture shock. But what happened was the really awesome thing that happened is that one of my football teammates asked me one day, says, hey, you want to learn how to ski? And I'm like, well, hell yeah. You know, why not? <laughs> and so... I, I started going with him to this thing on Wednesday nights that was called Sun Summit. And, and you know, basically the, the emblem was a mountain with a, with a sun peeking through it. And I always thought that it was S-U-N Summit. But after a couple of weeks, I found out that it wasn't S-U-N Summit. It was S-O-N Summit. Oh, they Jesus juked they, it. They did, man. <laughs> they, 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 they completely sandbagged me, man. <laughs> And, and and I wasn't I wasn't ready for it. But here was the cool thing. Now this was at a Presbyterian church in Edina, Minnesota. And these kids were so full of, I mean, overflowing, effervescently so with the love of God. And and they didn't shame me, they didn't tell me I was going to a burning hell. None of that. They just said, listen, man, I want to tell you about this dude that just loves you. And, and, and I was hooked. 
So, so I, I, that was my moment where I fell in love with Jesus, so to speak. And, uh, and, and shortly after that, I left Minnesota because my, my dad and I came to a, a loggerhead and, and I went back to Detroit and was staying with my mom. And so I got, I got baptized and, and when I when I came up out of the pool, the church mothers gave me a Bible, which I still have, and they gave me a bookmark, which I still have, with the Ten Commandments on it. And the church mothers were like, "Well, baby, you need to learn and memorize and live by all these commandments." And I was like, "Okay." And then I actually started to to read the Bible, in addition to what I was hearing from the pulpit, and I was like, "Holy crap! This ain't the same Jesus that I was introduced to." So, so anyway, I, I I wound up going into what they what what church folks will call a backslidden condition <laughs> that lasted between the time I was sixteen to basically the time I was say let's say thirty six thirty six thirty seven and and then at that point you know basically what happened was I, I went through this. Uh, thing where, and, and this is a moment of transparency here, uh, but I was married before, and in 1994, my wife died of cancer. Most devastating thing I'd ever went through. But it was also that moment where I knew that God was not some abstract concept, but he was actually, or she was actually real. Not a, not an abstract concept, but real and tangible. And, and so, Prior to a couple of years prior to my wife's passing, gave me a uh, an encouragement to share the gospel, and I was like, okay. And and after after my wife died, I kind of went into a, a, a basically I went into a single man's tailspin. I was chasing basically every skirt that moved. I like to get high. I like to get drunk. And then on top of that, you know, I was a consultant. So I had, I had, you know, ridiculously high income and, and time and money and all of that. And, and you just really, you know, you kind of get a little self-absorbed with all of that. I, I had a moment where I was not broke. I had money in the bank. I was not unemployed. I had a job. I was not sick. I was completely healthy. Nothing was wrong. And so I looked up, I'm laying, I'm laying, you know, flat on my back on my bed. And I look up and I say, okay, God, this is it. I'm going to do this thing that you asked me to. And, and that was it. That was the beginning of my, my journey in the ministry. And I got to share this one thing before I, before I give, turn it back over to you, is that right before that moment happened, you know, I was in Chicago uh, for a family reunion and, and I was one of the reunion chair people. And so my cousin and I, we were out doing shopping for the reunion. And so we're riding, we, and she and I, we, she's like my little sister, so we talk about everything. And so we're in the car, and we're just talking and talking. And then all of a sudden, she pulls off the street into this parking lot. There was a Target there. And she turns on the interior light in the car because it was after dark. And she looked me right in the face. She said, when are you going to do what God told you to do? And and I said, Chick, you've lost your mind. <laughs> I, I, I tried to play dumb because she obviously had me dead to rights. But I was like, mm, no, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, you know, God gave you an instruction to go out and share what he, had, he has for you to share. Now, when are you going to get busy and do it? And I said, look, let me explain something to you. I said, I like chasing women. 
I like smoking weed. I like drinking. And I like cussing. I like all of that stuff. I said, and I will get around to this preaching thing just as soon as I clean up my act. And this is what she told me. She said, God doesn't want you to clean up anything. Mm. He just wants you to get out of the boat. Mm. And that was the beginning, wow. man. Yeah, I wanted to ask you when, you, when you said that God spoke to you and told you to preach the gospel, when you heard that, was the gospel that you thought God was speaking of, was it the, the good news that you heard at the Sun Summit, or was it what you heard when you got baptized, here's the Ten Commandments, now get your act together? Man, I had no idea what the gospel was. I, I really didn't. I mean, you know, I knew what the gospels were. Mm-hmm. And I kind of knew that the New Testament was a an expression of the gospel, but you know it could have been anything. And um, and I'll tell you something, man. I went through some real head trips too because I remember one time one of my Navy buddies uh, asked me, he said, "Hey, why don't you come and uh, come to church with me?" And so, and this was shortly after my wife had passed, and I said, "Okay, I'll go." And I went, and the pastor, <laughs> he was this a big black dude, and he had a lime green suit. And he had a jerry curl. I don't know if you know what a jerry curl is, but he had a jerry curl. And and so basically he's hucking and bucking and harking and barking and he's hooping and hollering. And and, and (laughs) I'm literally in the back of the church and I look up at the ceiling, you know, because I'm I'm thinking looking up. That's the way I used to approach God. So I look up and I said, I said, listen, if this is what you want me to do, I said, you really got the wrong dude. I said, I, I know you're God. You see, you're supposed to know everything and you don't miss. But if this is it, dog, you missed. You just it. didn't want to do that. Huh? <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I didn't. I had no intention of doing that. So at what point did you finally, as the woman put it to you, get out of the boat? I mean, I got that. It was right after that right after the family reunion was over that I, w- I was in Chicago, went back home to, m- to my house in Detroit and I'm laying in the bed on a Saturday morning and, and I woke up and it's funny because normally I would go out on a Friday night, but this particular Friday night, I didn't go out. I didn't have a date, didn't have anyone come over, nothing. Right. I was just at home and, and I woke up and I said, you know, okay, this is it. I, I said, God have your way, whatever it is that you want me to do, I'm going to do it. Mm. And, um, and, and that, like I said, that was, that was the beginning of this journey, but it, it's funny because like I, I was involved with first a very, um, charismatic and very legalistic church. And then I was involved in an apostolic and very legalistic church. Mm-hmm. Then I was involved in, in what was supposed to be a kingdom church, but it was also very religious and, and, uh, and all of that. And so when it, when it actually came time to plant a church, our first church plant on our own that we didn't help somebody uh, was an abysmal failure. It, it, you know, it start, we started in Texas while we were living there. And I think we might've had two people come. It was church in our house. We had a beautiful house. So it was like, it wasn't that the ambiance was lacking, <laughs> but it, it just, it just didn't, uh, it didn't click. And then um, at the time we went to, to Texas, when we left Arkansas and moved to Texas, God reminded us, spoke to both me and my wife and said, Hey, you know, this, because he had spoken to both of us, separately about going to Arizona. Mm. And so when we were like looking, because my company was was looking at massive layoffs and, and we were looking at a move. And, and so God reminded us that the Arizona assignment was still on the table. 
so we made a decision that we were going to come here. And there's a story to that, too, because um, I went to work for a friend of mine, a guy that I had known for like 20 years. And when I went to work for him, you know, he, he recruited me by saying, listen, I'm taking my company to the next level and you're the guy. I need you, what you know, to get us to the next level. And I said, well, I said, Phil, I said, I'd love to do that. But I believe that God has an assignment for us in Arizona. And so he said, well, you know, he said, if living in Arizona is the only thing that would hold you up from taking this job, he said, I'll pay for you to move. And he wrote and he wrote us a check wow. for us for us to move. And and so that's how we got to, to Arizona. So then we pa- we planted a church here that was actually very successful. It wasn't it wasn't huge in numbers. I think that our our high watermark was around, you know, maybe 50, 60 people in service. But man, I mean, you talk about people learning the love of God and, and, and God just kept dealing with me about this love thing, love, 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 love. And every, everything that I did, everything that I read, everything that I preached, everything that I spoke, everything that I really even thought of just constantly turned back to that. And, and that was the beginning of, of my deconstruction. All right, let's talk about your deconstruction. Before before we dive into that side of the pool, though, I want to ask you about the legalistic side because you mentioned going from basically one legalistic group to another. What was it that kept you tied to legalism for so long? That I felt I was unworthy. That, that I had something that I had to prove, that something that I had to purge out, something uh, that was lacking in me. I, you know, the, the whole... I'm a wretch. I'm a worm, uh, man. It, you know, Keith Giles talked about this in the in the Nomad Conference about you know worm theology and uh, and 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 what Keith was uh, sharing in his talk. I mean, dude, this was almost the playbook by which you know I, I had lived. And and so you know what what I learned was is that um, man, there's like there is legalism. Legalism is is such a pervasive thing. In, in Christendom, because not only does it affect things that you know, you know, like when you start talking about um, uh, Pentecostal and apostolic denominations, and you talk about things like Assemblies of God and Church of God in Christ, or, or you talk about Baptists or Southern Baptists, or, you know, any of those things, or the Church of God, it, all of it, you know, there, there's a common thread of legalism that, that runs uh, throughout all of those. But here's, here's the thing that really threw me for a loop. Because you and I had a, where, where we began to get to know each other was in what they call the grace movement or the grace scheme, right? Right. And, and what I found, it, you know, having a sufficiently long timeline is that what people were really calling grace was really legalism light. <laughs> it's like light beer. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, right. that, that, it is, right? It's just a little, <laughs> doesn't have that hard edge of the real thing, yeah. but yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't wear you down like, like mainstream legalism does, right. but it, it does. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I know that uh, some of the things, some of the things that were trajectories or, or uh, points of tangency in my life were also like similar to yours. It's like, first it was like, okay, things like, okay, what does pro-life really mean? Because I was like, always, oh, that's anti-abortion. That's easy, right? No, pro-life is pro-all life and pro-all things that pertain to life. You know, because if you don't support those things, then you're really just pro-birth. So, 
that was one. And, and then, you know, we talked about uh, PK Langley was another speaker and PK and I were, were, uh, she was one of my closest friends on Facebook. She and I had never met face to face, but we talked, uh, we, I think we talked twice on the phone and a lot of correspondence via private messaging. And, and PK is one of the most awesome human beings that I know. And then when she came out and said, Hey, I'm gay. And, um, and, and this, this, uh, this woman has been with me. She's been my assistant. She's been my friend. She's actually my wife. And I was like, Oh fuck. I mean, that was literally what went through my head. And, and I'm like, okay, now does this, does this change how I feel about her? Does this change that level of acceptance? And, and so I had to, I had to rethink that whole thing. And, and it, and it forced me to go back to scripture and study this out again and, and ask myself, okay, is this really like a prohibition? You know, and then again, following your trajectory matters of race. And, and, and this was, this was such a, an, uh, it was a heartbreaking eye opener for me because many of the people who I expected to, to, you know, to just come out and be as vociferous as I was about matters of race and, and uh, social injustice and all of that, they didn't. As a matter of fact, they tried to discourage me from speaking about it. They came to me and said, oh, Derek, don't, don't talk about politics. Don't talk about race. Don't talk about racism. Don't talk about police brutality. Just preach the gospel. If we just pray and just, pr- and just prosecute this gospel message, it'll all work out. And, 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 and I did that. I did that for almost two years where I just really, and, and, and I said, no, you know, that's not, the thoughts and prayers are not going to cut it. There's, you, if, if no one hears it, no one sees it, no one can act. It's like if you are sick, in order for you to get on a treatment plan to make you better, you have to go to the doctor and get a diagnosis, and, and, and so the, the thing is, is that what, what I discovered was, is that the grace camp didn't particularly care for the diagnosis. And so I, I, I began to be, uh, to be ostracized. And yeah, that's kind of how that went. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? I mean, because, you know, we did unite around just the, the grace and the love of God. But when, it, when that love got tested, when we disagreed with one another, there just wasn't a lot of substance to it. And I, I found the grace movement to be heartbreaking. I mean, I think it's kind of a, a midway point between religion and freedom. And I'm grateful for my time there. I'm grateful for all the things I learned and the relationships that were formed. But but yeah, I mean, at some point, we got to talk about the fact that the gospel's calling us to something. And, and here's, the, here's the interesting thing, because they say, well, Jesus never spoke about race. And immediately when they say that, I take them to the story of the Good Samaritan. Right. Because Jesus called the story out very specifically. He said there was a priest and a Levite that, that, that walked across the street to avoid this guy who was obviously in distress. But then the hero of the story, the hero of the story is a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritan would have been a guy who drank from the colored only fountain right. in, in yes. Jerusalem. You know, this was the, the Samaritans were not well received. They were they were considered to be the dregs of society. They were they were worse than Gentiles in the eyes of the Jews. But but Jesus said this guy, and 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 again taking the the, the priests, the the religious crowd, and then the Levites who you know represented the majority. These guys 
ignore the plight of the downtrodden and the oppressed. So Jesus was actually very specific and very pointed about how he dealt with race relations. And the woman at the well was also a Samaritan, a Samaritan. And, and not only did he speak to her in, in, a, in a loving and kind way, but then ordained her and sent her to preach. It, it's like, even, you know, and, and I, I've since, I have to say this, I've since fallen away from the, the biblical literal, literalism camp. I don't, I don't see the Bible as a literal thing that we have to follow this literally or, in, you know, um, completely. I think that it's more of a more of a storybook or more of a history book uh, or a book of poetry or you know something like it's a literary work more than anything else. But even at that time when I was a Bible literalist, I'm like, okay, Jesus actually did deal with these things. It it actually is in there, and so it kind of broke my heart when I went back to my colleagues in the Grace Camp and I said, you know, you said don't talk about race, but Jesus did. So how how do we how do we reconcile that? Right. You know, it, it just it feels like when you get infected with the love of God, it's it's like you know a deep dive into the love of God is like peeling an onion, right? There's just so many different layers, and with every layer, these toxic beliefs that you didn't even know were there come off, and and, and you feel called to something and to make a difference and to you know bring the kingdom everywhere you go and. And, and the world is so hungry for that. And, and, you know, Scripture does talk about creation itself as crying out for the revealing of the sons of God as people who've just been captivated by love. And, and I, I see so much of that love in you, Derek. And I'm so grateful for your voice and social media. Uh, you are one of the first people that I wanted to talk to when I heard that George Floyd had been murdered by that Minneapolis police officer and his co-workers. Did you remember where you were when you heard about what happened to George Floyd? I, I was actually at home because, you know, the, the whole COVID thing has us quarantined. And, and so I was sitting here in my, in my office and, and, I, and I saw it in the news. And I was just like, well, at a certain point, I hate to say this, but you actually, if, if you're black in America, <laughs> you get a little numb to that. Because it, it's, it happens, we know it happens, but there's rarely ever any ramifications that come of it. And, and again, it's like my, my high watermark or low watermark, depending on how you look at it, you know, was the murder of Philando Castile. And, and the reason why I say that is that this guy, he was, he, all he had was a busted taillight. Uh, but he had he had he he was he was uh, carrying concealed lawfully, um, and he was in the car with his fiance and his four year old daughter. Now I, I don't care who you are, there has to be empathy and compassion for this child, because not only is this baby going to go through life without her father, who by every account was an exemplary person. <laughs> Not, not, you know, because the media tries to uh, criminalize every every black person that uh, that gets murdered. I won't even say the, the media, but it's like the media plus politicians. But by by every standard, by every measure, he was an exemplary citizen. And and, and I think I said this baby not only is going to have to go through life without her father, 
but she is going to have to process that she watched him die for the rest of her life. Any parent with a heartbeat, that should have resonated with them. So, so when I get to George Floyd, again, I'm, I'm a little numb. I, I, you know, I, I, I see it. There's a part of me that's angry, but then it, it's like, okay, this, this kind of thing happens all the time. But when I, when I began to listen to the video account and how he cried out, he cried out in pain. And then finally, before he gave up the ghost, he cried out for his mother who had been dead for two years. And, and, and when I heard that, I heard him cry out to his mother and, and I, I said, okay, I get that. But then when I learned that she had already passed on, that, that was a, a, a whole new level of heartbreak. Now, right before that, we have the Ahmaud Arbery case and, and how two guys basically, or three guys actually, hunted him down and killed him. That, that's what that's what happened. It's a a, a a 21st century lynching, and there's no other way to, uh, to 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 frame that. But when when I, I look at these things, and and I said, okay, God damn it, that's enough. And 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 I just I I, I, I tapped into a deep reservoir of righteous indignation, holy anger, and spiritual pain. And, and I'm banging this drum and, and, and trying to get people to see it. But here's the beautiful part. Because, see, in every storm, there is sunshine afterward. And this is what really – someone else had asked me in a podcast interview. They said, where, where do you feel like you are? And I said, I'm at the intersection of hope and despair. I despair because it, this is this is the same kind of crap that happens over and over again. And I have five sons, right? And and every time, like my 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 three that are uh, adults, they go out, and I have to remind them, listen, guys, whatever you do, just please come home alive. I don't don't have me come out and have to claim your body. And th- and that's a, that's something that white people don't have to tell their kids. They don't have to. That, that's something that's not part of their parental toolbox. That's something that I have to deal with. This is real. So anyway, that's the despair, but the hope. I got to talk about the hope. And Jason, you are one of those rays of hope, man, because you have been a relentless, untiring, bold voice calling this out for what it is, not trying to, not trying to sugarcoat it, not trying to delve into whataboutism or anything like that. You have been a tremendous asset, a tremendous friend and ally to your black brothers and sisters. And, and so many more, uh, Keith Giles and Carla Laura Forehand and um, Katie Valentine and uh, so many, uh, John Turney, uh, so, John Weldy, Kathy Baker, um, Joanne Maldonado, I mean, Jory Micah, so many you know, I'm, I'm, oh my God, I'm like, I'm welling up with tears in my eyes right now with, with all the white people that have come out to really, and, and, it, and it isn't like, oh, well, yeah, you know, yeah, Derek, it's, it's going to be okay kind of thing. And, or, or yeah, this was wrong, you know, but let's, let's move on. No, the, uh, you know, 
these are people who are literally putting on sackcloth and ashes with black Americans right now and mourning and grieving with them. And I'm so, so hopeful because of this. As a matter of fact, I grew up on the tail, I I was a child at the tail end of the civil rights movement. And I'm going to tell you that between then and now, I have never seen more white support against police brutality, against institutionalized and, and systemic racism. I am so hopeful because of people like you. Oh, well, man, I, I appreciate you saying that. But I know that in my case, particularly, I'm not not lumping anybody else you just mentioned in with me. OK, but for me, it's just a matter. I was so quiet on this issue for so long. Living in the buckle of the Bible Belt, pastoring churches in Alabama, being a Southern Baptist in Alabama, there was such a pressure to not rock the boat, to not say anything, and to not speak up on behalf of our black brothers and sisters and people of color. And I did that for far too long. I played that game for so long. And when that when I encountered the real love of God and it began to peel back all the layers of this onion, and I and I saw you my brother, for who you are as my brother, that you were created in the image of God and his likeness or her likeness, that you were created with dignity and worthy of respect and love. And then I saw the history of what people of color have been through in this country. I remember watching the, um, the James Baldwin documentary not long ago. I am not your Negro. And he, he walks through the whole history of the civil rights uh, movement, you know, back in the 60s. But before that, people have been lynched in this country for hundreds of years just because of their skin color. Uh, the, The first black people didn't come here by choice. They were forced here. They were never given the respect of an option. And and so all of us who are born on third base and then think we do something special when we score a home run, uh, my, something happened. My heart was turned towards people who were not born with that privilege and that. And, and I saw my own privilege for what it was, and, and it broke my heart that I'd been living this way for so long and enabling uh, the the preachers who use the Bible to keep people in oppression. And uh, I just I just couldn't do it anymore. And so, uh, man, I am so sorry for staying quiet for so long, but I'm so grateful that people like you have, have been patient with me and have uh, welcomed me with open arms uh, to the cause of loving people, no matter what color they are. And brother, I just, I just love you so much. And I'm so grateful for your life and your ministry and your work. And uh, if there's anything I've learned about me, in this phase of my life. I don't know if it's the last phase or a middle phase or what, but I know that what I'm being called to do right now is listen, just to listen. And the voices that God keeps pointing me to are are voices like yours, Derek. They're voices like Carl for, uh, I'm sorry, Kyle Butler and and people like that who, who I know are just full of the love of God and, and are going to be patient with ignorant white folk like me 
who want to help, but really don't know what to say half the time. And so I'm so grateful for your patience and your love and, and uh, all that you've been to me in the couple of years that we've known each other, brother. Well, man, I, I appreciate that. Um, you don't know how much that means to me because, I, I, like I said, it, when it comes to ministry, before we actually knew each other, I always, you know, admire you from afar. Uh, so I, I've been I've been a uh, I've been a Jason Elam fanboy for some time. Okay, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that means you have issues, but I appreciate it. <laughs> man, I don't have, I don't just have issues. I've got subscriptions. So. Uh, <laughs> But, but the thing oh, is, is brother. that, um, you know, I understand that not not everybody is is going to be a, a drum major. Not not everyone, you know, basically on, on, on the field of play, you, you have, uh, you know, you have you have coaches, you have spectators, you have and you have participants. And, you know, not everybody's cut out to be a participant. You know, some people are only cut out to be spectators and some people are only cut out to be coaches. And so I don't expect the same thing from everyone. And I don't expect when, when I when I approach some of my uh, brothers and sisters in the grace camp, I said, listen, I'm not looking for you to lock arms with me and march. I'm not looking for you to um, uh, to, to be uh, a, a person standing beside me in, in, uh, in vocal protest. I'm just looking for you to look at something and say, okay, God damn it, that's wrong. You know, just, just if you could just say that, if you could just call that out, then, then we, we're, we're on the right path because other people will hear that and they'll respond. And, and this, is, this is the interesting thing, like... Um, you know that 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 people that people like you and people like uh, you know Carl and Laura and and um, and Keith, it, it's like you guys are voices, not just not just regular voices. Your voices with influence, and and I'm really I'm humble to the degree you've put your social capital at risk. Because I know that you, I, I've seen some of your posts on social media, and I've seen you get blasted by people. I've seen Keith get blasted. I've seen Carl get blasted. I've seen Katie get blasted, you know, and, 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 and then you have like, 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 uh, Kyle and myself, you know, which Kyle is one of my best friends. We've known each other like three years now, but literally he's, I mean, I mean, he's like my brother. I mean, we talk all the time. And, and the thing about Kyle is Kyle doesn't take the same approach that, that I do. I'm a little bit more bombastic. Yeah, more in, yeah, more in your face. I've noticed that about you. Kind of uh, whereas Kyle is like, okay, right. listen, you know, yeah. we're going to stick to this love thing, and we're going to we're we're going to push this love thing because if we don't, it, it, basically, we can't just kick the can of love down the road. You know, Kyle is like, listen, we've got to actually, you know, hand carry this to to its destination, and I'm appreciative of of, of people like Kyle. Uh, for that, for that very reason, um, not every, you know, basically, when you when you talk about heroes of the civil rights movement, most people turn their attention to either Martin Luther King Jr. or Malcolm X, and 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 so that Kyle is more Martin and I'm more Malcolm, and and that's that's fine. However, what people don't know, and and this is a history lesson for those that don't know, is that toward the ends of their lives they had actually kind of flipped the script because Malcolm went to Mecca and uh, went on, on the, the, uh, the pilgrimage known as the Hajj 
And and he came back with a whole different outlook because he saw white people who worship Allah. And, and, and he saw these people came with, with the same peace and love in their heart as any other Muslim that he had met. And, and so, so when, when Malcolm came back from Mecca, he was no longer calling himself Malcolm X. He was now Malik El-Hajj El-Shabazz. That was his name, and legally. And, and, uh, but Dr. King, toward the end of his life, was, was more vocal about, about the plight of the poor, about, the, about the, uh, the issues of the Vietnam War. And he began to talk about money problems, and he began to talk about them with, with, with power. He was speaking truth to power. And the, and the rhetoric that he was using was not the same nonviolence that had so-called brought him to the dance. Because before he, not long before he died, he had an interview with Mike Wallace where he said that riots are the language of the unheard. And, uh, and, and when he was um, murdered in Memphis in, uh, in 1968, and I, I still remember exactly where I was. I, I was. I was in the bed with my dad because we were both sick. We had colds. And April 4th, 1968, that, April 4th is my dad's birthday. So he, he was a little bummed out because he was sick on his birthday and I was at home sick from school, and, but we were there. And, and, but the, the thing is that after he passed, there were riots in Memphis. And, and people say, well, the riots were the outcry of people who were frustrated because another one of our leaders had been murdered. But no, I beg to differ that even if Dr. King had been alive, that riot still would have happened. Because because uh, Dr. King had hit a point where, uh, you know, because it, this is a funny thing, you know, I've, I've asked this question. I said, OK, if you don't like these riots and protests that are going on, I said, please tell me what is the right way for black people to protest what's going on? And, and frequently they'll say, well, you should you should do like Dr. King. I said, well, you know, do you realize that every time that Dr. King marched nonviolently, that he was met with violence on the part of the police 100% of the time. There was never a, a, a march or a protest by Dr. King that ended peacefully. They started peacefully, but they never ended that way. So, so it's like, okay, so, you know, march like Dr. King, get your ass kicked, okay? And, uh, you know, political capital, well, you know, we're 13% of the population. So scratch that out. Uh, and then you start talking about uh, economics and, you know, basically that if black America were a nation, I, I think that I, I read once that we would be the sixth largest nation in the world in terms of GDP. And, and, and so, yeah, you know, economic boycotts, yeah, you know, they kind of they get that, but, you know, not really. But every, literally every time there has been a sea change in race relations in America, it has always come in the wake of something violent. It's it's never it's never come peacefully. And and I said and I've said this before that you know the United States was formed on riots. That's how we came we came to be. So uh, you can't get mad for people who are seeking to appropriate the same things that, like Patrick Henry said, "Give me liberty or give me death." You can't be get you can't get mad about that, right? But you know, it, it's not threatening for white people to hear somebody like Patrick Henry or even somebody like Donald Trump to say, 
give me liberty or give me death. What is it that makes it scary when a person of color says it to white people? Because there is a there is a national guilt that that people don't want to deal with. Condoleezza Rice had said that America's birth defect is racism because we're we're founded accommodating of slavery. Now we have the we have the opportunity to actually fulfill the creed of the Constitution that all men are created equal. And and we fail. And and it took abolitionist cries, it took uh, people understanding what the what the real uh, heinous and reprehensible roots of slavery were. And then it took a war on our own soil, brother against brother, to sort this out. And then even once it was sorted out, that the, that the promise of the victory <laughs> was never shared with, with black people. So the, I, I believe that there is a, a belief that's secretly held by a lot of white people that believe that if we really push the give me liberty or give me death option, that that blacks would try to exact revenge. And this, this was a big reason why a lot of people had problems with the Obama presidency. Uh, but, but Obama was, was the president of all people, and, and, uh, and basically by his fiscal standards, he was more conservative than anybody else but Reagan. <laughs> and that's so, um, you know, he was, you know, maybe on some social issues, he was very liberal, but he was very uh, conservative in his fiscal. And, and he didn't just go in and strip things away from white people and give them freely over to blacks that, that you know, that would have been a recipe for civil war. So he, he didn't do that, you know, but I, I think that, that there is a fear among a lot of whites that that somehow blacks given the given the opportunity would seek revenge and and this is what i say right i have no desire for revenge because honestly to be perfectly honest the majority of my friends are white the majority of the people that i'm close to are white the majority of my professional acquaintances are white so and 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 these are these are wonderful people with whom I've had wonderful experiences, uh, with whom I've shared you know my career, I've shared my ups and downs, my highs, my lows. There is no way that I want to exact revenge. Revenge is not of love. Now, my ask to America is: Yes, we forgive. I think black folks are some of the most forgiving people in the world because if if, if it were based on how we were treated, revenge would be a, a completely viable option. <laughs> but I, I say, you know, I, I forgive the the damage that was done, but my ask is that you get your knee off my neck right now. And George Floyd was not the first to die in this way. And I mean, even Breonna Taylor just happened just a couple of months before George Floyd. And, you know, people burst into her home. Uh, the police just burst into her home. I guess they had the wrong address or something and and shot and killed her, shot her eight times. And those officers have never been held accountable for that. Or um, uh, what, what was her name? Atiana Jefferson in Fort Worth, right. Texas. Yes. You know, she's, she's playing video games with her nephew. 
and and a policeman fires into the home. I'm like, you know, and and then and then you have both of John in Dallas. You know, it's like you're you're not even safe in your own home, and and that that really should should call some things into question. Uh, because at, at at the very least, I mean, you know, we talk about things like the uh, you know like the Fourth Amendment that uh, protects us against unreasonable searches and seizures, right? But that that fourth the Fourth Amendment also protects you from being abused in your own home by the by the officers of the law, and, and so this is you know you could you know you could just kind of scroll through the Bill of Rights and see everything that was violated in this particular case, um, or, or in, in all of these cases. So um, at, at the end of the day, you know, if I if I were to say okay, because people say Derek, what's the remedy? What's the remedy? Uh, you know, number one, let's let's um, look at these police forces because um, basically, and I've said this too, that I don't believe that all police officers are racist. I mean, for crying out loud, when Freddie Gray died in Baltimore, half of the cops that were involved in that were black. So it's not it's not necessarily a, a total racial dynamic. Uh, but here's the, here's the deal: not all cops are racist, just like all white people aren't racist. However, all police departments, 100% of them, are racist. And the United States of America, as an institution, is racist. The, the nation and how it's constructed and how it's been manifest is racist. And, 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 the, and the people, it, whether, you're not a, whether you're a racist or not, you know, if you're white, you reap the benefits of it. Mm-hmm. Because the system itself is racist. Exactly. And, and, you know, another history lesson is that when I talk about all police departments are racist, is that basically there were uh, slave patrols or slave trackers, you know, during the days of slavery. And they are the ones that basically establish coherent departments, organizational structures, uh, forensic investigations and uh, witness interrogations, basically the foundation of every police organization with the exception of New York City, because New York New York City was ostensibly modeled after the London Police Department and Scotland Yard, but every other police department in America owes its legacy, its roots, its origin to the slave trackers, and and because of that, un- until you 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 unpack that or walk that back and say, okay. What what are these police departments actually doing? Well, a, a big percentage of what they do is controlling the populations of quote unquote undesirables. And until we until we take that away as as a policing initiative, as a policing methodology, this is going to continue. So I'm almost in the mindset. If you look at, I think it was Camden, New Jersey that um, they basically disbanded their police department and they forced every, every officer to reapply. And in this case, they did background checks, they did extensive vetting, and they wound up getting rid of, I think, almost 30% of their police force. And what they've done is that they've become a model of, com- of community policing, uh, of um, you know, community uh, relations, and, and crime has gone down. But not only has crime gone down, but incidents of police brutality are down like 40 plus percent. That's crazy. But it's something that any police department 
that if they take an introspective look at how they are operating, they can embrace the same things and, and hope to achieve similar or even greater results. When people hear the term defund the police, I think the image that a lot of especially white folks get is, is just lawlessness. That's not what you're talking about when you talk about defunding the police. You're, you're pointing to that Camden, New Jersey example. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, basically reallocating resources. Like for, uh, for one thing, there was this, uh, and I think that this happened during the, uh, during the Clinton administration, uh, that police departments had basically carte blanche to purchase uh, retired military assets at a discount. So, so you had police departments that were armed with the weapons of war to basically do community policing. And, and when, you, when you send police out like stormtroopers, when you send them out with semi-automatic assault, assault weapons, when you send them out with military shields and riot gear, and you send them out with, with body armor, um, and, and then you send them out with, with military vehicles, which, which have a, not just a functional value as, as, a milita- as military hardware, but they're also, we- they're, they're also weapons of intimidation. They look scary. They're intended to, to, to achieve a psychological result. So, you know, when I talk about de- defunding the police, I'm saying, first of all, let's get rid of all this military hardware, number one. So demilitarize the police. Demilitarize. And then, and then number two, begin to really vet and evaluate uh, the officers who come to work. One of the officers in the George Floyd uh, situation has had this guy had several felonies before he got hired as a police officer and not just felonies he had violent felonies so 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 basically when you when you have someone that has violent tendencies or if they have uh, uh, bullying tendencies or if they have if they have racial hang-ups or anything like that uh, basically these are people that have no business in the business of policing you know, it's it's just like, and I'm going to say this because I'm not a Trump supporter. You know, I, and, but you know, Trump, Donald Trump is a child of God, just like anyone else, and he's worthy of the love and the honor that any child of God is 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 worthy of. However, I don't believe that he's fit to be president of the United States. Just like I'm not fit to do orthopedic surgery. I'm a <laughs> smart. Right. I'm a smart. I'm a smart guy. <laughs> yes. I have a high IQ and and I'm educated. But I have I have no business with bone saws and and sutures and and drills and I no I would kill somebody because I'm not skilled and I'm not gifted in that area. So 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 basically I'm all for you know um, basically having police look for the best and the brightest. But let's really look for the best and the brightest. Let's not just you know take every warm body uh, that, that's willing to, to suit up. Absolutely. And I agree with you, uh, Donald Trump, particularly, he, he is a child of God, created in the image of God. One day, the white hot love of God is going to consume all of the fear, insecurity, and deception in Donald Trump's heart. But until that happens, he needs to get the hell out of our White House. Yep, completely agree. <laughs> Uh, brother, this has been such a great conversation. I've been so grateful to have this time with you, and I hope that we can do it again sometime. Um, 
racism is on full display. White supremacy is on full display. I mean, just living through COVID, you remember when all the regulations came out and folks started here and they're going to have to wear a mask if they left the house and these big crowds of armed white men with semi-automatic weapons were showing up at capitals all over and they got patience and tolerance from the government. But when the black folks take to the streets, when one of their own is killed brutally in the streets and they march to say this has to change, they get rubber bullets and tear gas, if not worse. So I don't know how anybody could say that the deck isn't stacked against people of color in this country and it's got to change. Now, after the death of Emmett Till, things seemed to get a little better for a little while. And then after the death of Malcolm X and the death of Martin Luther King Jr., things seemed to get a little better for a little while. After Rodney King was beaten in Los Angeles, seemed to get a little better for a little while. Do you think that in light of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and so many others, that this is a moment in America to make progress on this issue? It absolutely is. And, and here's the thing, right, that these, these incidents are not isolated. Uh, basically, these things have been going on all of my life. You know, I've seen police brutality. I've been the victim of police brutality. And, and so I, I understand how it goes. Will Smith said something. He said racism isn't getting worse. He said it's just getting filmed. You know, people are actually now they're able to see it and, and it's being displayed in such a way that it can't be denied. And and so now you have, uh, I mean, people, listen, when I think it was today that the French family and NASCAR announced that they would no longer allow Confederate flags at their events. You, the, the depth of the boldness of that, and, and here's the thing, the, the French family do not have a particularly good track record when it comes to racism. However, they, they have always accommodated, uh, you know, uh, people like um, uh, uh, Wendell Scott, uh, who was the first, the first black driver in, uh, in, in, um, in cup history. Um, you know, with, with, um, they, they weren't, they, they did not want Wendell Scott to race. They tried to do everything they could to keep him from racing. But the thing that they couldn't deny was that he was good. He was competitive and he was good for the sport. And so they let him race. And now he's, in the Racing Hall of Fame, he's in uh, NASCAR's Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, he's just, he's an icon. He's a, a civil rights uh, sports and racing icon. Now, fast forward to today that, that the, you know, the, the French family and, and, and the NASCAR governing body, that they've looked at all of this and they said, listen, we don't want to be on the wrong side of history here. And, and so my take is, is that if NASCAR as an organization gets it, there shouldn't be any institution in America that doesn't because, because the, the NASCAR has its roots and, you know, it's hip deep in, in racism. But, but this, is, this is an organization, an apparatus that is saying we are not just willing to change. We're willing to put our capital on the line 
And and so, you know, I, I've, I've been seeing people threatening, well, I'm not going to be a NASCAR fan anymore. And I said, well, you know, I said, I never really was much of a, I mean, I've, <laughs> I've always admired certain drivers right. and, and certain kinds of races. Like I like the road course races. I'm not big on the ovals, but <laughs> I, I said, I said, hell, I'll be, a, I'll be a fan and I'll bring my kids along, you know, Absolutely. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's like, if, if that's what it takes, if I have to show my support with my dollars to show that for them showing their support by putting their dollars at risk to to speak out on behalf of me and people like me and people like my sons and and listen this is this is a moment i really believe that we are turning a corner and and i and i urge everyone who's listening please don't let up don't let up i mean this is this is a marathon and not a sprint it's not going to be a quick victory. This is going to take years. But if we all hang in there together to be, a, 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 and, and again, like uh, agreement is not a prerequisite for unity. So we don't have to agree on every single thing. But if we could just be united and say that all men are created equal and that God and the love of God and the love of Jesus is upon and in every human being. And if we start with that premise and, and continue down this road, committed and dedicated to ending racism, to ending police brutality, to ending economic disparity, and to actually healing the wound that this nation was born with, I believe that, yes, Jason, we are on the precipice of an extraordinary time in American history. I believe it, brother. And I long for the day. Uh, recently, I wrote a statement on why we speak out. The last line of that is because our brothers and sisters of color are worth it. And when I said those words, you were the brother that I was thinking of. And I love you so much. And I'm so grateful for you and your voice and your work. And we will continue to follow. You keep leading the charge and, and we're right with you, right behind you. And uh, we're not going to let up until this thing changes. How can folks engage with you and your work online? My uh, my website is DerekDay.com. And if you go to DerekDay.com and click the link for contact, there is a form that will pop up. And if you fill out that form, it will send me an email. And one of the things that I promise is whether you like me or not, if you send me an email, I promise to respond. Uh, you can also reach me on Facebook at uh, Facebook.com forward slash Multimedia. On Instagram and Twitter, my handle is Derek E. Day. That's D-E-R-R-I-C-K-E-D-A-Y. On YouTube, my channel is Derek Day. I also host the Love Forward podcast, which you can find on Apple iTunes, on Google, on uh, Spotify, and um, and Podbean. And uh, you can get my book, Deconstructing Religion, on Amazon.com. And last but not least, don't forget to check out my blog on Pathios. It is called Love Minus Religion. Friends, we're going to link to all of that in the show notes for this episode to help you find it nice and quick. I do urge you to get a copy of Derek's book, Deconstructing Religion. Follow him on social media. Fill out the form on his website. Get in touch. This is a, a voice you need to be hearing on a constant basis. Derek, thank you so much, brother. I love you. Love you too, Jason. Thanks for having me. You've been 
listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.